Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Well, welcome listeners to this episode of the Thinking Christianly podcast. Today, we are discussing death and dying. And if you were tuning into this podcast because you wanted to hear us talk about very cheery topics, I'm afraid you might be in the wrong place. But hopefully we can address this issue with the hope of people who know that death is not the end. So my my first kind of question to get us kicked off is going to refer us a little bit back to our last episode where we talked about abortion. And we talked just the slightest bit about utilitarianism versus a really holistic view and biblical view of what life is. Would either one of you like to kind of summarize that difference for us? Stan? We made the distinction between a functional definition of personhood, the view that when there are certain functions present or certain levels of functioning present, the fetus is determined at that point to be a person. Mm-hmm. Before that, it's not. And uh, we made the point that uh, that's a problematic way to define what a person is or what life is, uh, because we're always growing in those functions uh, until the point when we stop growing and begin decreasing in those functions throughout the entire span of our lives. And we made the point that the better way to define personhood is ontologically as opposed to functionally. And so I'll just refer the listeners back to that conversation last time. Mm -hmm. But that was the distinction we made that applies here, of course, on the other end of life as well. Yes, thank you very much, Dan. So a functional versus an ontological view of life is going to be something that helps us in this conversation to get through some of the weedier parts of this topic. So is death simply a medical issue? Well, it's, it's not even clear to me that death has anything to do with medicine. Um, only in the limited sense that medicine is able to prolong death or um, a person can die in the operating table because the surgeon did something wrong or sustain life through chemotherapy or what have you. But the question of what death is, is not a scientific question. Your answer to that will depend on your answer to a prior question. And that is, what kind of thing are we? And what is life itself? Now, a lot of people get really confused because scientists define life in terms of having the biological ability to receive nourishment and to eliminate waste, uh, to engage in various kinds of metabolic processes and uh, things of that sort. But but the confusion is that these are presented as though they're ontological. That is, they're what life is. Uh, but 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 for a whole bunch of reasons, and we can go into some if you'd like. But those are just evidences of when life is present. When all those are gone, those are reasonable evidences that there's no living being present. But what life is. Uh, is a metaphysical question, and your answer to what life is has got to be broad enough to include not only all the actual living things, but things that 
don't exist, but could have possibly been living things and existed. Let, let me give you an example. I live in California and supposed that I defined a dog in terms of a certain sort of an or, animal that lives in California. Because that's all I knew about it. And I thought that that's all the dogs were. Well, it would follow from that. There aren't any dogs in Oregon. Because my definition uh, rules out dogs living elsewhere. My definition is too narrow. So if you have a definition that's too narrow uh, and you find dogs in Oregon, that shows that you didn't define it broadly enough. Even, and even if there were no dogs in Oregon, if, if one was willing to admit that there could have been dogs in Oregon, then you can't define dog as a certain organism that lives in California. Now, similarly, if you define life in biological terms, that excludes actual, or at least people would have to admit possible beings like angels and God from existing and being living. Because if life is only defined in California, that is in biology, then there can't even possibly be living things in Oregon, that is, that aren't physical, but have life. Now, God is living. Angels are living. And even if you don't believe they're real, there surely could have been such a thing as an angel that was living. If that's possible, then these biological criteria cannot be definitions of life. In fact, they're really epistemic criteria for biological organisms to tell perhaps when they've died and that sort of thing. But life is fundamentally the result of being insouled. A soul is what gives life to a thing, in my view. And Stan can comment if he'd like. That's uh, entirely consistent with my view. You know, Aristotle said that a hand is human because it's insouled, and you cut the hand off. It's immediately not a human hand, and that will pretty quickly become apparent. Uh, that it's no longer insouled. It's no longer animated. Animus being the Greek word for soul. So it is no longer insold. I can refer listeners here back to our episodes. What is the soul and why should we care? There's Mm -hmm. a part one and two of that. And that really gets into that conversation of Mm -hmm. the soul. Yes. This also reminds me of the 21 grams experiment. Are you familiar with this gentleman? Yes. By Dr. Douglas McDougall in the early 20th century. For those of you who are not familiar, he attempted to find the weight of the human soul <laughs> in grams. <laughs> and oh, uh, Category fallacy. Yes, exactly. And that's the, that's the fallacy that we're talking about here is trying to measure a person's life in, in physical, physical stuff. Exactly. And, you, you know, that's the problem. When scientists become the spokespersons of reality, mm-hmm. and they have absolutely no philosophical training. Now, the old early scientists, Newton and all those folks, they knew philosophy. Mm-hmm. And they knew when, when they had left purely empirical issues and they were moving into metaphysics, scientists today don't know that. I mean, asking how many grams does the soul weigh is like asking how many grams does the note C weigh or the smell of a rose. It's called a category fallacy. It's a simple freshman mistake in logic. And here you have a scientist who's supposed to be a big shot, 
who doesn't even know the elementary, the rudimentary principles of logic. It's just so embarrassing, but it's misled a lot of people. That's why we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And there, there's some immediacy to this also. Christians are facing issues about death and dying often. We tend to not bump into our mortality until there is something, someone either close to us or ourselves are facing one of these crises. And I think that the purpose of this podcast is to give people a bit of a frame of reference when they do bump into those issues of mortality. So let's talk about some of the key issues we face as modern Christians about death and dying. Stan? Well, you know, you raised something that I think is really important to reflect on, and that is this is a uniquely modern phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Uh, As little as 100 years ago, uh, there were no such things as mortuaries people would die and be uh, in the parlor for the um, the visitation and the funeral. Uh, there was, of course, in agrarian culture, regular death and dying of animals, whether from disease or, or uh, slaughtering them for food. So death was all around. It was just a normal part of, of life. Uh, and we're now living in a unique time in history where we are so far removed from death. We never engage it. We never have to, in a sense, face it. Uh, It's sterilized. And I think actually our faith in modern science uh, seduced us a little bit to think, well, maybe we can actually never have to face it because we'll keep getting more and more technology to prolong life and maybe even find that holy grail of living forever. So it's it's a, a topic that we have not been forced to think about for these reasons for uh, for quite some time. And that's a problem, I think, because there's a real health in thinking about our own mortality uh, and that of others, uh, which forces us to then think about how we're living and if we're living well, and, and if, if we're dying well, both are important. You know, Thomas Akempis in The Imitation of Christ made the statement, it's a tragedy if people spend all their time worrying about life after death when they never spend any time worrying about living well in this life. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't dismissing the, the former, but he, you're, he's saying what you're saying, Stan, that uh, your understanding of death and life after death should influence the kind of life you're living here. And it actually does, I think, unless you just never think about it. Mm-hmm. I, I think your statement that it's sanitized and we're never exposed to it is, is spot on. In fact, the only place we are exposed to death is in the movies and television. Yeah. And there it's just not the way it really is. You're right. We have an aversion to it uh, in a way that people in previous uh, periods did not. Yeah. And so I, I also wanted to comment that, uh, you know, there's always the fear of the unknown, but uh, as Christians, if, and this is going to harken back to an earlier conversation as well, but if we understand the Christian faith and the truth claims made in Scripture as part of a knowledge tradition, not just a belief tradition, not just subjective things we can choose to believe but aren't actually true, if we really think those things are parts of knowledge that we can know what is beyond death's door, uh, 
then there isn't the fear. So that's a, a big issue as well, and it ties back into actually what we take to be true about the Christian worldview. Uh, the propositions that are contained in it, or just the experience of feelings that might be uh, all one says is, is, is all they need. Well, I'm actually an example of what Stan's saying. I was born with a genetic predisposition to a very rare disease. The bottom line is it makes me at a higher risk for a whole range of cancers than the normal population. And so in 2015, I had prostate cancer, and later I got a, a very serious colon cancer that I had to have, had 31 lymph nodes involved. I had to get it taken out. Uh, and then go on to chemo, and I had radiation. Mm. And, um, you know, I went to get the report at the surgical office uh, as to whether they had evidence they got it all. And I didn't know what was I was going to read. So I'm sitting there, and I know that in this envelope is going to be an indication I'm probably moving toward dying or not. And it turned out they got it. But I've had to face that now four or five times. So so here's what happened to me. When I got over the colon cancer, I realized that I had a slight fear of death because I had a little bit of a fear that I would be annihilated when I die and there wasn't an afterlife. Now, I was convinced there was, but it wasn't until I faced death that I realized I needed to beef that up Mm -hmm. Uh, because before I I just kind of took for granted based on the evidence of the resurrection and all that, that there, there, there is life after death. But then when you're confronted with it, I realized and hope felt the same need, actually, it's kind of interesting. Mm. Uh, So what we did is started about a four or five year project. The first thing I did was to go over the evidence again for the resurrection and became reacquainted with just how solid it was. It had been a while since I'd studied it. I knew I had concluded it was solid, but it was good to go back and experience the the recognition of how strong that evidence was. But the other thing that we did is we have now read, I would be willing to bet 50 credible books on near-death experiences. Mm. And as a result of those two things, I can look you in the eye and, and hope can too. And we have no fear at all of dying, mm. none. In fact, if you want to know the honest truth, both of us are looking forward to it. We're not looking forward to the process. We'll be sad to leave our children and our friends. But what the near-death experiences have done, the, the credible ones, mm-hmm is that they have put color on what the Bible has in black and white. The Bible doesn't describe a whole lot about the intermediate state. It talks about the final resurrection, but it's pretty sketchy. And um, in my book, uh, A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles, I have a chapter on near-death experiences. I'd recommend the viewers read that because a lot of Christians are afraid that near-death experiences aren't biblical. Well, it turns out that about 95% of them, and there have been 300 million by statistical studies around the world, and one in every 25 Americans has had an NDE. 
Uh, it's incredible. And now we've gathered tens of thousands of reports and sifted through and found a commonality to them. These near-death experiences are almost all consistent with the Bible, believe it or not. And I'd show that in, in that chapter on near-death experiences mm-hmm. in my book on miracles. And I have a bibliography in the back that I highly trust. And there is another book that I, I reference in that bibliography that will also, for anybody who's still afraid of dying, should read. And what this does is it not only strengthens your confidence, hey, there really is life after death, but it gives you an experiential sense while you're reading of what it will be like. Mm-hmm. And it's just overwhelmingly wonderful for what these people report and describe. And uh, that has helped me get rid of my fear of dying. Mm-hmm. But it was something I had to admit to myself. I had a little bit of that left. Uh, and I tried to find out, well, how can I get rid of that? Because I'm at a stage in life where I'm kind of, uh, you know, in the last half of the fourth quarter, and I'm not praying for overtime. <laughs> and so this this is something that I stare at. And so does my wife. Mm-hmm. And to have that assurance is just making the, the latter eight years of my life tremendously joyful mm-hmm. and peaceful in that respect. JP, would you mention what book that is you're referring to that's in the bibliography? And we'll put it in the show notes. Yes, it, it's a book by John Burke. I know John, and uh, it's called Imagine Heaven. Mm. And um, it, it's the best book for presenting credible cases and answering all the biblical objections. Mm. Now, there are other books that are that deal a little bit more with the so-called skeptical atheist objections. And a good one by that would be Jeffrey Long, Evidence of the Afterlife, where he deals with about eight of the major objections and shows why none of them make sense. Mm. Mary Neal also wrote a book about her own. She was a surgeon about her own uh, experiences. These are all referenced in Experiencing Miracles, so I don't remember the title. Mm -hmm. But they they go over these arguments and they just take them apart. Mm -hmm. There is also a recent book out by Dale Allison. And JP, you have a relationship with him. Is that correct? You know, I don't. I've, I've He contributed a chapter to a book that I edited. Okay. But I've never met Dale. Yeah. So he recently was on um, the Unbelievable podcast, and we will link that as well. And he, he had a lot to say about near-death experiences. And his book is called Encountering Mystery, Religious Experience in a Secular Age. And I think it would dovetail nicely with a lot of the things that we're talking about here. If you want more information on, on those things as well, JP, I, I am saddened that you had to come to that experience of facing your mortality. That's incredibly challenging. Thank you. I'm also very grateful because you did some legwork for us. I did. I I really appreciate that. You're welcome. May I just add another comment about our, our subject? Certainly. When you meet people that you know have certain problems, like they, they, they're rude or they're angry, they attack people and they can't contain their anger, but you know that they're suppressing that. Mm-hmm. Or if somebody had a really, really close loved one die, but they've never grieved and they're suppressing all those feelings, you know 
that they aren't very happy and they don't have enough energy for life as they used to because it takes a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. You might not aware that you're exerting it. It's, I think it's all subconscious, but it, it takes energy to keep that stuff s- suppressed so it doesn't bubble up. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have in the culture because mm-hmm. we live in a in a post-Christian secularized culture. That's just the fact of the matter where people aren't as happy as they used to be this by a good bit. And that's been studied massively by sociologists. That's not just my opinion. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of anxiety in the culture in general. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people are expending energy, suppressing the fear of death. And medicine now is all about postponing death And I'm I'm glad about that, but it's no longer about palliative care so much, about helping a patient in the process of dying. That's been kind of punted to hospice care. Mm -hmm. So I think that the fear of death is hanging over a lot of people in our culture. And I've met some of them who are really afraid to die. And in order to suppress that and have at least some kind of a life, you have to refocus your attention. And that's one of the one of the causes of addictions. Because addictions to pornography or to over watching movies or television or drugs or whatever, alcohol are see, those are ways to keep you from ha- it makes it easier not to focus on the thing you're stuffing. And you end up, though, gradually becoming a shriveled self. And that's what we're seeing in our culture. People are shallow and trivial today. Mm -hmm. And uh, the level of our political discourse is an expression of anger. uh, And there's no thought in it. I mean, if you look at what the pro-choice people have been saying about, you know, the Supreme Court's decision, they, they don't have any arguments that make any sense. They're just spewing their venom and anger. And that's what you're going to get in a culture that's shallow and trivial because they don't know how to face death and life. And that's what Christianity has to offer people. And I say to Christians that are still struggling with this, there are ways to grow. Reexamine the resurrection. Take a look at, at, a, at a reliable source on on near NDEs and you're going to be you'll be helped Mm -hmm. what's not available to a secularist unless you're willing to consider an alternative worldview Mm -hmm. we will return to the show in just a moment but first a word from our sponsor do you have a child relative or friend preparing for or attending college what they need most are christian professors who can help them learn to love god with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith, While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith Podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. 
students as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now back to Thinking Christianly. JP, I love how you tied that in with anxiety. I think of the Kierkegaardian definition of anxiety, which is that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Ah, wow. I like that. It also reminds me there is this, this is one of those reports that's very difficult to read, but it was in the early 50s. A man named Dr. Leo Alexander went to Germany to do a report on German medicine. And I like to put quotes around the word medicine there. Sure. And he made, made some really significant observations and his, his observations were um, for the government, but he ended up writing an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And one of the things that he mentioned, which I, I think is very interesting, this is a quotation from him talking about our inability to connect with people or give good care to people who can't be rehabilitated. So he says, a certain amount of rather open contempt for people who cannot be rehabilitated with present knowledge has developed. This is probably due to a good deal of unconscious hostility because these people for whom there seem to be no effective remedies have become a threat to newly acquired delusions of omnipotence. Yep, that's exactly right. When you're confronted with death, you have either delusions of omnipotence or immortality or a sanitized view of death that's somewhere else, as Stan put it. Mm -hmm. And what that contributes to is a way of coping with my anxiety. And thus, I become hostile to anyone who is going to break that coping strategy and cause all of my anxiety that I've suppressed to bubble up and I feel it. So a lot of the anger that we see today is really due, in my opinion, to a suppressed anxiety about a whole host of things, and, and including dying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We even sequester these people often out of hospitals and into different centers of care. Yes. We simply can't seem to come to come to accept that there are conditions for which there is no cure. And yet <laughs> those people are still human and worthy of great care and compassion. That is if the functional view is not true, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I don't stand and I utterly reject it. But if they're right, mm-hmm then as you lose function, you become less and less valuable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just abhorrent. But uh, but I think you're right about that. Mm-hmm. Well, that came out in an article, Jordan, you had mentioned that uh, came out recently about the medical assistance in dying uh, legislation in Canada. Yeah. The article was very disturbing, but uh, not unexpected. Uh, as we have more and more of this understanding of life being defined in functional terms and not ontological terms, uh, it was about Canada's move toward broadening the cases in which euthanasia is okay. For instance, uh, one of the changes is trying to allow people to be euthanized exclusively for mental health reasons, Mm -hmm. Uh, also considering extending euthanasia to, quote, 
mature minors, that is children under 18 who meet certain conditions. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's all based on a functional definition of what it is to be a person. Uh, and criti critics are quoted in the article as saying these changes um, are, are problematic for that reason. Let me quote from the article. Canada, which arguably has the world's most permissive euthanasia rules, are allowing people with serious disabilities to choose to be killed in the absence of any other medical issue. Human rights advocates say the country's regulations lack necessary safeguards, devalue the lives of disabled people. Okay, there's that ontological claim that it doesn't matter what your abilities are, you're still equally valuable, and are prompting doctors and health workers to suggest the procedure to those who might not otherwise consider it. Equally troubling advocates say are instances in which people have sought to be killed because they weren't getting adequate government support to live. Uh, so there's a slippery slope that is happening uh, in not only Canada, but that's where this article is focused, that once you start to move away from an ontological definition of, of what it is to be a human and move to a functional, uh, then the circle can easily get bigger and bigger of who really mm -hmm. isn't a person or isn't worthy of status of personhood. And it actually becomes a social choice, I think, mm -hmm. uh, as to what our society is, where, where they have collectively decided to draw a line. Mm -hmm. But often it's not a principled decision. I think I want to add something to clarify. Stan and I published an article together in a philosophical journal on euthanasia, and we, we drew a distinction between active and passive euthanasia. Passive euthanasia is morally acceptable, and that's allowing a terminally ill patient to die if the treatment they're receiving is burdensome and the benefits are very, very small. In other words, their life isn't going to be increased very long. In that case, it's permissible to not try to do everything in sight to keep them living another week because that's a denial of the inevitability of death. And so it's permissible to allow a patient to die by withdrawing treatment. Uh, and, and, and what kills the patient is the disease, not, not the doctor. So that is morally permissible under a certain set of circumstances. Active euthanasia is actually intentionally killing a patient uh, so that the individual or his wife or a friend or the doctor has the right, the, even, even the moral right, if you, your quality of life is not sufficient for the way you want it to be, to engage in active euthanasia against you. Well, I'm telling you, um, we would have to actively euthanize uh, all the freshmen of Biola during finals week. Because, I mean, I'll tell you, not a one of them has a life they would consider at that point the way they wanted it to be. <laughs> so that's, a, I, that, that's making light mm -hmm. of a very serious issue. But you get the point that we're trying to make. Active euthanasia can only be justified if we adopt a functional view of the human person, as Stan has said, and we make quality of life what gives me my value. So that if my quality of life is high, then I have, I'm worth a lot. If my quality of life is diminished, then I have lesser value. 
That's true. And if you adopt a functional definition, since we don't all function equally, then we don't all have equal value as homo sapiens. And it's hard to justify equal rights for everybody because we're not equal. Whereas on the ontological definition, we're all human persons. And we would say that we bear God's image and we are equal, irrespective of the quality of our life and the degree of our functioning. By the way, this is why there's a hell and why the annihilation is false. Because if God were to annihilate people, that would mean he valued them based upon their quality of life. But even though their quality of life in hell is 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 low, and it's not like many people think where they're being tortured and, and actually burning in fire, those are but it's not pleasant. They're separated from anything that matters. But they still are monuments for eternity of the high value each individual human person has, ontologically speaking. And that's why there's a hell, because it preserves the, the, the intrinsic value of human life and doesn't make quality of life the supreme issue. Mm-hmm. Dr. Alexander, his report that I mentioned earlier, he went to these places and had firsthand accounts from German officers, from German doctors, and from the administrators of some of these medical procedures, experiments, people who underwent them. He, I mean, this is a first, first-hand account. He was gathering data. And he comes back with this statement as to how this all got started and, and what happened that allowed humans to do these horrible things. Here's his words. It started with the acceptance of the attitude, basic in the euthanasia movement, that there is such a thing as a life not worthy of being lived. That's right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's very similar to the uh, statement in the article that I mentioned earlier, the AP article Mm -hmm. about Canada's law, Theresia Degener, professor of law and disability studies in Germany, actually, Mm -hmm. uh, is quoted as saying, quote, the implication of Canada's law is that a life with disability is automatically less worth living, and that in some cases, death is preferable. There you have it. The same implications. There you have it. Mm-hmm. Hey, I want to pick up on one thing that, JP, you mentioned and um, say just a little bit more about it. I think Christians are often, because we want to affirm life, uh, and rightly so, are often confused or hesitant to ever see death as okay in a sense Mm. and to agree with the culture maybe for other reasons certainly uh, often for other reasons but agree with the culture we should always preserve life and and the fact is that for instance uh, ecclesiastes 3 1 and 2 there is a time for everything a season for every activity under heaven a time to be born and a time to die and you made the point that there is a distinction between active euthanasia where you're actively taking a life and passive euthanasia, where you're allowing those natural processes to run their course, which will end in death, and that that's okay. I think people need to hear that as believers, to have a reassurance that they're not doing something wrong when they're having to make decisions in the care of perhaps their parents. I mean, I faced this three years ago. My father was uh, in the hospital. 
He was in and out of consciousness. He developed pneumonia. And we were asked if we wanted to sign a do not resuscitate order, a DNR. Otherwise, if his heart stopped beating, they would be required without a DNR to mm -hmm. perform CPR, which would inevitably break some of his ribs, uh, which would lead to a lot of pain in a long recovery period without even addressing the underlying issue. And so we did sign the DNR as a result. And uh, that ended up, uh, you know, being how he passed away. So it was passive in that it was this natural process that occurred, but it was euthanasia and it was a good death and that we allowed it to happen. And then Christians need to understand that's an important distinction. And there are times you let those processes run their course. Uh, it would be the same as somebody choosing not to go through a fifth or sixth or seventh round of chemotherapy. And that's okay. Yes. Good, good example. Mm -hmm. That's very important. And I've written more about this, actually, in my mm -hmm. experience with my father and my, my series on saying goodbye well. So we can link that in the show notes if people want to read a little bit of more of my story in that. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Stan. It's interesting, too. One of, one of the other quotations in that article is from the Canadian health minister who says that the country's euthanasia law recognizes the rights of all persons, as well as the inherent and equal value of every life. What? Yeah. They're claiming that the, the euthanasia law in Canada recognizes that? Correct. So this is where these conversations are so important mm -hmm. because we cannot take those kinds of statements as statements of fact, as Christians, we, we need to be critical of some of the information we are consuming. So this, this would be a great case of that, that you can hear something that, you know, well, he said all the right things. It seems like they're, you know, recognizing the value of every human life. And then the portion that is mentioning that minors or mature, forgive me, mature minors will be eligible for this program is in the footnotes. It's in the footnotes. That's absolutely terrible. I am very encouraged by the outcry of secular people saying, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. They read the footnotes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they could have easily passed that right on through. That's something with this podcast, with Thinking Christianly, that we're encouraging you as our listener to participate in. We understand you can't care about everything. There's just a barrage of information at all times. But when we're evaluating something like the issue of euthanasia, this is a place where we want to get good information that is reliable and really hold it up against a Christian worldview in a way that shows light into the cracks that may be there. Some of this stuff really is quite subtle. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it turns on things that have come up before. One, last time we talked, JP made the point of ordering the questions in the right way so that mm -hmm. we're asking the logically prior questions first, uh, a la Aristotle. Mm -hmm. uh, and then secondly, which has come out over and over, the importance of making distinctions and not being fuzzy in our thinking about these things. And so that's the recurring theme I want to call out because on this issue, like all others, but certainly here, those both are important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. And certainly something that I have not arrived at. And I am learning from, from both of your example, both from your writing and from your teaching, how to make those distinctions and then how to apply 
logically prior questions to get to the heart of an issue. Mm-hmm. Well, Jordan, this is why I, I need to say that the people who are listening to us really need to redouble their efforts and pull out the stops to recruit as many of their Christian friends as possible to watch these audio casts. Because there are a number of good Christian websites and so on that are doing these things, but we're among them. And we need to train Christians how to be the leaders in the culture in thinking about this. And that's what this show is all about. So if you're hearing us, please, I hope you're enjoying this, but don't just enjoy it yourself. Get other people on board because we have this movement needs to multiply so we can get the word out about how to think as Christians. Very important. Mm-hmm. This is an ivory tower stuff. This is uh, mm-hmm. real life. Yep. And as we take on different topics, we're applying these principles to the topics. And it sure does get easier and easier as you have more and more practice to apply these principles to each new issue that comes up. And you may find that you are less overwhelmed by the world around you and the information that's coming at you. Again, that anxiety, the dizziness of freedom. If you can take an issue and think about it Christianly, that is the reason and using your mind, the the one that God has given you. And a great case in point is when you get clear on the distinction between a functional and an ontological definition of a person, and you think about that in terms of the abortion conversation, well, you don't have to reinvent the wheel when you think about euthanasia. It's the same distinction. It applies there as well. It's easier to think that through because you've already done the homework to get the right questions, the right ordering, the right distinctions in place to think that issue through that applies so many other places. Mm -hmm. That's so helpful. Quite frankly, this is what it means to learn to think well. People say to me, well, how do you learn how to think well? You know, my answer in terms of the step one is just start listening to podcasts or start reading or listen to books on tape or however you do it, but begin to engage yourself in gaining information from people who think better than you do so you can learn how they do it. And when you do, you're going to find out that the things stand just listed. Learning how to order the questions in their proper ordering, because some things are prior to others, learning how to spot that, learning how to make careful distinctions, and learning how to weigh the relative strengths of the evidence for or against something, because not all evidence is equal. Those are just some of the things that you learn And a lot of the ways you learn it is just by hanging around people who who do that better. And you hang around by watching or listening to things or reading reading books. Uh, So that's that's another reason why what we're doing here is much broader Mm -hmm. than just the topics that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Or finding a few people in your church who are interested in getting better uh, at thinking as well and read something together and discuss it and try to learn by doing with this group of friends who are all on the journey together. Mm -hmm. What a great model too. This is, this is how Christianity has spread is that we, we do this in community and we encourage each other. We hold each other up. We inform each other and we tell the truth. Yep. Well said. That's, that's well put. I'm going to give us one last 
kind of case for this. And again, we're going back to the early 20th century and some doctors in Holland. When the Netherlands were occupied, the Germans did not come in and tell doctors, uh, you must send your chronic patients to death factories or you must give lethal injections at government requests in your offices. No, instead they said this. It is the duty of the doctor through advice and effort, conscientiously and to his best ability to assist as a helper to the person entrusted to his care in the maintenance, improvement, and reestablishment of his vitality, physical efficacy, and health. The accomplishment of this duty is a public task. Now, there's not obviously much to be against in there, but the physicians of Holland rejected this order unanimously because they saw what it actually meant, namely that the concentration of their efforts on mere rehabilitation of the sick for useful labor is not acceptable. Oh, I see. Yeah, good point. Now, that's subtle. It's very subtle. That is subtle. The Germans said, that's it, we're revoking your medical licenses. And they said, sure, we'll mail them to you. And they sent 100 of the doctors to concentration camps. But the rest of the doctors remained in operation in the Netherlands <laughs> and did their work quietly and peacefully and didn't participate in the kind of atrocities that other occupied countries' doctors did. And it was because they decided unanimously we are not okay with you treating people like means to an end. Mm. Well, thank God that that was a country that had a rich history of theologians mm -hmm. that respected in their culture. And these theologians actually had their ideas trickle down into the population. Mm -hmm. as this is just one evidence of, of, of that. Absolutely. These medical doctors were aware of a philosophical decision they were making if they went along with this program. They didn't know that concentration camps were, they didn't have a, they weren't privy to a lot of that information, but they did know that rehabilitating the sick to make them more useful was not the entirety of medicine. And I hope to be the kind of Christian, the kind of person in my workplace, in my home, with my family, with my friends, that catches those subtle distinctions, points them out to my community, and then says, oh, we have to resist this. Mm. I'll make another connection. It's, it's going to be an example of what JP just said, but uh, a very influential leader in the Netherlands, both in the academic and political world, was Abraham Kuyper. Mm -hmm. who uh, was a prime minister. He was a theologian. He was a journalist, founded the Free University of Amsterdam. So he had a lot of influence throughout the country. Mm -hmm. And I think people like him, and he is a shining example of a Christian who has thought well about these issues and understands these are truths that need to permeate the culture and was articulate enough and leveraged his position to help these enter into the public square, into the conversation that was being had by the broader culture, not just a private conversation uh, that they might be having with their Christian friends or in their church, mm -hmm. but said, no, this is public truth that needs to be discussed and understood and believed by the entire populace because it leads to flourishing and the common good. Mm -hmm. And of course, then that played out in this situation you just alluded to. Mm -hmm. What a legacy 
as we, as we talk about death, legacy is something that is top of mind. You know, what is it that you are leaving behind as you leave your earthly body and the things that we do in this life matter. So I I would just encourage our listeners with, with those stories and with these thoughts, we can understand these things in a way that is Christian. Yep. And the other takeaway I'd want to make sure we have uh, articulated well, and as a point I was making about Kuiper on a macro level, Mm -hmm. but for all of us, we have all have a responsibility to speak truth and Mm -hmm. to bring uh, biblical truth into the conversations that are happening in our culture today. Mm-hmm. Any further thoughts before we go, JP? No, I just, I just am such a complete agreement. Uh, and, and again, I say that's why uh, of a lot of things I could be doing with my time. It's, it's really a privilege to give time to this program because mm-hmm. I understand what we're doing. And it's just, it's exactly what you two have said. And uh, mm-hmm. I want to give my life to that. And with whatever gifts I have, as we all should, in our own little sphere of influence and with our own gifting and and limitations. (laughs) Thank you both. Good conversation. Good to be with you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcasts where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plink, encouraging you to think Christianly.